This podcast episode was recorded live by Oncology Data Advisor and Convey Med at the 2022 ASH Annual Meeting in New Orleans. Welcome to Oncology Data Advisor. I'm Kira Smith. Today I'm here at the ASH Annual Meeting with Dr. Shernan Holton, who is here to talk about the results of the BMT-CTN 1703 trial that she is presenting. Um, so we're really lucky to be able to present the 1703 data. This is a phase three clinical trial that we literally had the data um, cut on uh, just a few months ago. So this is a randomized phase three study testing a novel GVHD prophylaxis regimen. Since the mid-1980s, we've used a calcineurin inhibitor and methotrexate as the standard doublet for GVHD prophylaxis in the United States. And so this was testing a regimen of post-transplant cyclophosphamide tacrolimus and MMF against the standard. And um, indeed, as you can see from the abstract, the experimental arm with post-transplant cyclophosphamide did have improved outcomes. The primary endpoint of the study was graft-versus-host disease-free relapse-free survival. We thought this was important. A number of previous studies have shown that we can really greatly reduce the risk of acute and chronic graft-versus-host disease, but often this comes at an expense, either increased risk of infections that could be fatal, or increased risk of relapse. And so we wanted to test, could we improve upon the outcomes of GVHD while not making these other issues worse? And so that's why we chose that primary endpoint. And indeed, the experimental arm is the winner. Great. Uh, so what were the like the specific results of the trial? Yeah, so specifically, uh, with that one-year graft-versus-host disease-free, relapse-free survival, it was about 16 to 17% higher in the experimental arm. Uh, we powered the study to be able to detect a minimum difference of that, uh, that type of magnitude. We thought that that would be clinically meaningful. Um, we didn't want to do a study that would just have, say, a 5% improvement or a 10% improvement even. To have a really clinically meaningful change, we thought we had to have at least 15% difference between the arms. And indeed, we saw more than that. So since we saw that magnitude of benefit, our expectation, our hope is that this will actually change standard of care. This should change the practice because it really was a meaningful difference. Great. It's so exciting. Yes. Thank you. Um, anything else you'd like to share about just your experience at ASH as a whole? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this is a great opportunity to share other research as well and some complementary research too. So our, our big focus here is on the 1703 abstract, but there's a limitation to the study in that it's only adults and it's only in the reduced intensity transplant setting. And so this does not address pediatric transplantation. It does not address myeloablative conditioning. We had another abstract that was a single center study from the University of Minnesota testing the same GVHD prophylaxis platform as 1703, but in the myeloablative setting, including pediatrics and adults. And so it just so happens that we were able to present that abstract at this meeting as well. So Dr. Alex Hoover, one of our fellows, presented our phase two findings that showed just like 1703, very low rates of acute and chronic graft-versus-host disease with post-transplant cyclophosphamide with no increase in relapse progression, um, and in fact, an improvement in overall survival compared to our historical cyclosporin and methotrexate. So this really complements what we found in 1703, that both in the myeloablative setting and the reduced intensity setting, post-transplant cyclophosphamide is associated with very low rates of severe acute and chronic graft-versus-host disease. Great. 
for, thanks so much for sharing all this. It's super exciting to hear about. Yeah, thank you. Stay tuned for the publications. Yes, <laughs> they'll absolutely. Be, they'll be forthcoming. <laughs> they'll have a lot more data um, mm-hmm. and a lot more kind of subgroup analysis because I'm certain that everyone has a question. Well, what about this particular disease or what about this particular age group? I think just stay tuned. More will be revealed. And um, just excited to be able to share these top line results with everyone. Great. Looking forward to hearing that. And best of luck on your presentation. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this podcast recorded live at the 2022 ASH annual meeting by Oncology Data Advisor and Convey Med. For more expert perspectives on the latest in cancer research and treatment, be sure to subscribe to the podcast at conveymed.io and oncdata.com. Don't forget to follow us on social media for news, exclusive interviews, and more. Welcome to the i3 Health Podcast, where we explore the latest advances in cancer research and treatment. I am Katie Cook from i3 Health. Graft-versus-host disease is a major contributor to morbidity and mortality among patients receiving allogeneic stem cell transplant. Although management remains a challenge due to its heterogeneity and complex pathogenesis, intensive research has led to significant advances, including the first-ever FDA approval of prophylaxis for acute graft-versus-host disease. This episode of the i3Health podcast will focus on new opportunities for improved patient outcomes in graft-versus-host disease. It features perspectives from two noted experts in the field, Dr. Shernan Holton, Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of Minnesota, and Dr. Carrie Kitko, Associate Professor of Pediatrics at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. This activity is supported by an independent educational grant from Insight. Free CME and NCPD credit are available for this podcast. To claim credit and obtain further information, including faculty disclosures, visit i3health.com slash ODA hyphen GVHD. Hi, everyone. I'm Shernan Holton. I'm Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of Minnesota. It's my honor today to talk about new opportunities for improved patient outcomes in graft-versus-host disease with my colleague, Carrie Kitko. So thank you for the opportunity to speak with you today. Again, I'm Carrie Kitko, and I'm uh, an Associate Professor of Pediatrics at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Great. Let's get started. Uh, this is our disclosure si- slide. So our overall learning objectives for today are to apprise emerging insights into the biomarkers for improved diagnosis and therapy selection in graft-versus-host disease, assess recent clinical trial findings on the efficacy and safety of emerging therapies for acute and chronic GVHD, and evaluate the implications of recent clinical advances in GVHD for supporting patients and meeting their individual care needs. And throughout this talk today, we will be um, kind of going back and forth between my experience and Dr. Kitko's experience, really focusing on personalizing therapy for acute and chronic graft-versus-host disease. So overall, uh, we'll be reviewing the scope of the problem and current unmet needs. I will start with acute graft-versus-host disease. This accounts for up to 10 to 15% of deaths prior to day 100, even in the current era. 
Steroids remain the standard of care, but are associated with many side effects, as you all well know, and nearly half of patients still need additional therapy beyond corticosteroids. And unfortunately, some people develop acute graft-versus-host disease concomitantly with disease relapse, uh, such as after immunosuppression withdrawal or donor lymphocyte infusion for relapse, thus creating a second problem, and this is an unmet need in our field. And then I'll hand it over to Dr. Kitko for the chronic GVHD unmet needs. Yes, so um, as our patients survive further out from transplant, they have, unfortunately, the risk of developing chronic GVHD, and that does remain a significant contributor to both morbidity and mortality for our patients. Similar to acute GVHD, steroids remain the standard of care for treatment, but the majority of patients are going to require several additional lines of therapy in addition to their steroids. One of the biggest problems with chronic GVHD are the sclerotic and fibrotic manifestations that are not typically felt to be reversible. And we um, are, while we are working on discovering more biomarkers, there are challenges with biomarker discovery and validation in chronic GVHD that are different than what we see with acute GVHD. So moving forward, we'll focus initially on acute graft-versus-host disease concepts. Uh, overall, we'll be reviewing phases of management, risk stratification, and personalized treatment before we transition to chronic graft-versus-host disease. Starting with acute GVHD, these are the phases of management that we'll be discussing today. Prophylaxis, obviously it's uh, the best case scenario to avoid the problem in the first place. We'll be briefly discussing preemptive therapy, but then spending a bit more time on first-line treatment and subsequent treatment. Overall, I think both Dr. Kitko and I would agree that multicenter clinical trials should still be the priority for treatment of acute and chronic graft-versus-host disease. And overall, we hope that our field will continue to move away from broad immunosuppression to more precise approaches targeting the alloreactive cells that spare graft-versus-leukemia effects. So let's start with prophylaxis. It's exciting to see that the field is moving forward after several decades. The standard of care for GVHD prophylaxis has been for decades a calcineurin inhibitor plus mini-dose methotrexate. There have been many phase one and phase two studies completed over the decades that have kind of endeavored to try to change this paradigm, uh, but nothing yet has really improved outcomes significantly beyond these two drugs in terms of uh, markedly changing outcomes. Major advancements are starting to happen now, and we're seeing the potential for three drug regimens to possibly overcome the, uh, the current standard of calcineurin inhibitor plus methotrexate. So just briefly, I wanna talk about an FDA approval that is really exciting in our field. This is the first ever FDA approval for prophylaxis of acute graft-versus-host disease. Before, every single drug that we have been using has technically been off-label. Uh, but in December of 2021, abatacept was approved for the prophylaxis of GVHD when used in combination with a calcineurin inhibitor and methotrexate. We'll go into this a little bit more on the next slide, but this was approved in the setting of allotransplantation with both matched donors and single antigen mismatched donors in pediatrics and adults with myeloablative conditioning. So this is really very broad. Overall, the outcomes of acute graft-versus-host disease were very low in both the matched and single antigen mismatched cohorts, uh, leading to these FDA approvals. So very, very exciting to have an FDA-approved drug in our field. 
Next, I just want to highlight that more and more centers are using post-transplant cyclophosphamide in combination often with tacrolimus or sirolimus and mycophenolate mofetil. This is based upon the experience in haploidentical transplantation, now applying the same strategy even in matched allogeneic transplantation. There is a completed phase three study that will be comparing post-transplant cyclophosphamide, tacrolimus, and MMF to our standard of calcium inhibitor tacrolimus plus methotrexate in the reduced intensity setting with matched allogeneic transplantation and this is BMT-CTN-1703-1801. Uh, the 1703 component is the therapeutic uh, arm of the study, and 1801 is the study that's focusing on looking at the impact of the microbiota and allogeneic transplant outcomes. We expect to have results from the phase three clinical trial for the 1703 component in the next six to 12 months. And so I think many of us are very excited to see if we will have a new potential standard in the reduced intensity setting very soon. Let's go on to just ABBA2 briefly, focusing on this approval just a little bit more. Uh, Abatacept is a T-cell co-stimulation blockade agent FDA approved for a number of autoimmune diseases and applied here for the first time in allogeneic transplantation. And before I review the results, I just want to ask Dr. Kitko, has your center used this yet or did you participate in the clinical trials? We did. We participated in the clinical trial um, and uh, were um, quite impressed with the, with the results. Um, we have not seen it um, being used yet as sort of standard of care, but we did. Um, we are working to get it on our um, hospital formulary so that we will have that option available to us. Okay, that is excellent. So how this was used was with uh, calcium inhibitor plus methotrexate as standard, uh, plus abatacept versus placebo. And this was given on days minus one, plus five, plus 14, and plus 28. And in the two studies that are focusing on match transplantation and single antigen mismatch, this was all myeloablative preps. And the inclusion criteria included both children and adults. The primary endpoint of the study was grade three to four acute graft-versus-host disease by day 100. And you can see in these graphs here, significant improvement in these results, especially in the seven out of eight cohort. So very strikingly low incidence of severe life-threatening acute GVHD in these cohorts. So with seven out of eights, that instance was 2.3% versus 30.2%. Uh, this was based upon a CIBMTR, non-randomized matched cohort with real world data. Now the eight out of eight, you'll see this is uh, still improvement, but 6.8 versus 14.8% was not statistically significant. However, efficacy overall was based on overall survival. And I'm not showing this on the graphs here, but overall survival was improved in both the seven out of eight and eight out of eight cohorts, thus leading to the FDA approvals. And importantly, with safety, there were no observed increased risk in relapse or infectious complications. And I have not personally used this yet myself, but I'm just curious, Dr. Kitko, um, what your experience was like administering this medication? The, well, we, <laughs> I don't know that we were ever unblinded to our patient status. So um, it didn't seem like there were any side effects when we did the um, infusions of the, uh, of the placebo versus the abatacept um, in our patients. But I was very you know, involved in the study calls and, and we did monitor very closely for things like viral reactivations, and they really did not see 
increases in CMV or EBV reactivation um, in, in the patient population that we were studying. Um, I think some of the other things to really highlight on this study is as a pediatrician, we're always an advocate to try and get um, studies to include pediatrics. And this is an example of a very well-run study where pediatrics actually made up about 30% of the patients included in the study, which was really great to see so that they really could, with confidence, um, approve it down to age two. Um, I think some other important takeaways, especially since I'm on the chronic GBHD side, is that importantly, the study didn't um, see differences or um, impact on the rates of chronic GBHD. Uh, and so future studies using um, ABBA are actually looking at extending it for further um, further post-transplant to see if they can impact potentially on rates of chronic GBHD as well. Excellent. And thank you for that experience. I think it is remarkable to have an approval that includes both children and adults. And it's really important to see that there was no significant signals of some of the trade-offs that we often see when we do give additional agents to prevent acute GVHD, there is often this trade-off of relapse or increasing infection risk. And so that's just hugely important and thank you for that experience. Now let's move to the concept of preemptive therapy. So the transplants already occurred and the immunologic events that are leading to the development of acute GVHD are underway, but there are not yet any clinical signs of acute GVHD. Can we intervene early before there are clinical manifestations? And I will just say that this is an area of unmet need. There have been studies performed, but no standard approach as yet. We're highlighting here a couple of different drugs that have been used as preemptive therapy. Uh, one is antithymocyclobulin or ATG, and another is alpha-1 anatrypsin. With ATG, the Italian group used this at day seven based upon biomarker studies uh, that included serum cholinesterase, total protein, BON, and GGT. Uh, there was a reduction in acute GVHD, um, but no difference in transplant-related mortality. With the Calgary study, they used different biomarkers. They used soluble IL-2 receptor and IL-15. Also reduction uh, in graft-versus-host disease, but high TRM with this as well. So I would say that ATG is really probably not the right agent for preemptive therapy. Uh, or potentially, you know, we're focusing here on broad immunosuppression again. We really want to be looking at more specific immunosuppression that's going to spare infectious immunity. One such concept then would be with alpha-1 anatrypsin. This is a drug that is really immunomodulatory and not particularly immunosuppressive. So in a study with the Mount Sinai Acute GVHD Consortium using ST2 and REG3-alpha at day seven, if people had high risk of acute GVHD based upon those biomarkers, uh, they could receive alpha-1 anatrypsin Overall, the study showed that the infusions were well tolerated, but it did not impact the subsequent risk of steroid refractory acute GVHD. So here we're applying a drug that could potentially assist with immunomodulation and tissue repair, but not seeing the clinical signal that we had hoped. So I would say this is still an area that needs ongoing work. Uh, Dr. Kitko, your thoughts on this? Yes, I, I would agree. I, I think this is always the concern when you're doing preemptive therapy for something that you think is high risk is, is being able to identify what intervention can you do and what are the risks of that intervention? Um, because even though patients might be at high risk, it's not like 100% of the patients with high risk biomarkers go on to develop steroid refractory acute GVHD. So that balance is always really um, 
super important to keep in mind when you're designing these types of clinical trials. Yeah, definitely. I think one of the potential limitations here is that we don't know that these biomarkers are specific for acute graft-versus-host disease. They could be elevated in regimen-related toxicity and infections as well. And so until we have a really specific biomarker and a drug that we think is really going to have that precision efficacy to you know deplete those alloreactive cells without causing other untoward immunologic issues... I think this is still going to be an area of unmet need. Now, moving on to acute graft-versus-host disease first-line treatment. And we need to think about clinical risk before we pull the trigger with treatment here. The first decision point that we make is the question, is systemic therapy needed? If it's not needed and you can just use topical therapy, then the current clinical risk stratification systems do not apply. You're by, ne by definition low risk if you only need topicals. But if in your judgment systemic therapy is needed for acute graft-versus-host disease, then it's important to apply some kind of strategy to determine what is the likelihood of this patient having steroid refractory disease or having a fatal outcome with graft-versus-host disease. In the context of clinical trials, uh, one of the risk stratification systems that's commonly used is the Minnesota risk score. Minnesota standard risk is mostly skin acute graft-versus-host disease, plus or minus upper GI, so largely cutaneous involvement and limited visceral involvement. This will be the majority of patients with acute graft-versus-host disease. Approximately 85% of patients will have Minnesota standard risk disease. And so what this means here is these patients are expected to do well with systemic therapy for acute graft-versus-host disease. And in fact, there's a concern that we may be over-treating them if we give everybody high-dose steroids. So in this group of patients, we're looking for steroid-sparing approaches. There was an important BMT-CTN study that was published a couple of years ago, which was BMT-CTN-1501. This was a randomized phase two clinical trial of high-dose corticosteroids versus sirolimus as first-line therapy. And the summary of this study was that the efficacy in terms of day 28 response was the same, but quality of life was actually better on the sirolimus arm. So many centers are starting to use sirolimus for Minnesota standard risk acute graft-versus-host disease based upon this study. Minnesota high-risk disease is different entirely. This is more rare. This is about 15% of patients, and they will have severe single-organ involvement or multi-organ acute graft-versus-host disease. In contrast to standard risk disease, these patients have a high likelihood of being steroid refractory or actually having fatal outcomes related to acute graft-versus-host disease. So here, we're still using high-dose corticosteroids, but we're seeking to add additional therapy that can help overcome the risk of steroid non-response and death. So that's the clinical risk stratification. I wanna just highlight some additional biomarkers that can also be useful. Um, clinical manifestations are obviously very easy to assess immediately, but sometimes there can be symptoms that are, are severe and subclinical, and it, it can be difficult to discern based upon, for example, stool frequency in an outpatient, just how bad GI, GVHD can be. So sometimes biomarkers can be an additional tool to help risk stratify. Uh, 
Biomarkers can range from things that are readily available in the hospital laboratory to biomarkers that are typically used in the research setting. So some clinically readily available biomarkers include albumin, this is obviously something that we already routinely check, and there have been studies that show that albumin levels below 3.5 are associated with higher risk disease, likely due to the degree of inflammation and potentially protein-losing enteropathy. Uh, sometimes I can see this clinically before my eyes, watching albumin levels drift down, sometimes even into the ones with severe GI-GVHD. So albumin is sometimes quite helpful. Another readily available biomarker is calculating an ASIC score, and this is done by multiplying the LDH times the creatinine and dividing that by platelets. And this is thought to be an endothelial stress-related uh, biomarker, and this has been associated with outcomes in acute GVHD as well. Looking at the stool in GI GVHD, we can measure fecal calprotectin. This is a neutrophil protein that our GI colleagues often will use to distinguish inflammatory bowel disease um, from other non-inflammatory causes of diarrhea. And so we'll often test this if we are confused as to what degree the, the uh, diarrhea symptoms are driven by inflammation. And in the acute GVHD setting, this is shown to be a strong predictor of response, but I will say this is not diagnostic for acute GVHD. This could be elevated in C. diff colitis or CMB colitis, and so you still need to do the work to determine if there are other causes of diarrhea. In the research setting, we can use the MAGIC algorithm. This is a combination of ST2 and REG3-alpha. This has been widely validated with multicenter studies performed by ELISA, uh, but at least in Minnesota, still used in the clinical trial setting. Uh, Dr. Kitko, I'm curious, are you using MAGIC biomarkers outside of clinical trials just yet? Um, not for initial therapy. I tend to... Um really still strongly believe that we should be enrolling patients on clinical trials and know for sure that choosing therapy based on biomarkers makes a difference. Where, where I have used it, there were those patients that aren't responding as, as I anticipated. And sometimes if you, if you look at the response data, we have patients that can be slow clinical responders, but their biomarkers remain low risk. And those patients have a high chance of eventually responding to therapy. So sometimes it helps me not pull the trigger on adding an additional agent when perhaps I just need to be more patient. Yeah, I would agree. So similar uses here. And that same kind of concept goes for amphiregulin. Uh, this is a more recently described biomarker that we developed at the University of Minnesota. Also validated this on multi-center samples. It can be tested um, really anywhere using ELISA. And so the goal is hopefully people can perform this in their, their hospital labs. Our hospital lab will, will do this test for us. Uh, but I agree, this is really in the context of clinical trials or if we are having a hard time understanding what someone's response pattern is. If they have persistent symptoms, you know, how much inflammation is still going on, how much damage is still there versus, you know, how much healing do we have yet to see. Um, these, these biomarkers are still, I'd say, under, under development because we don't know how specific they are. Infections and other problems can elevate them. So this is still, still something that is a work in progress, but it is helpful, I think, to have these tools to use in conjunction with our clinical assessments. I just want to highlight briefly a few studies that are ongoing for the treatment of acute GVHD in the first-line setting that are using these risk uh, stratification modalities, either clinical risk or biomarker risk. 
In the standard or low-risk acute GVHD setting, we have idacitinib, which is a JAK1-specific inhibitor. This trial is completed and awaiting results. And nihilizumab, which is an anti-CD162 antibody. This targets activated T-cells and spares resting T-cells, or a more precision approach. Uh, this is currently enrolling. In high-risk acute GVHD, we have a number of agents that are undergoing testing. Idolizumab, which is anti-CD6. Some preliminary results have been uh, presented at ASH. Natalizumab, targeting T-cell trafficking. Urinary-derived human chorionic gonadotropin plus epidermal growth factor, uh, supporting immune tolerance and tissue repair. This has been completed. And then we are currently enrolling to BMT-CTN-1705, which is alpha-1 antitrypsin versus placebo in addition to high-dose corticosteroids. So this is on, uh, ongoing, and you can see here that there are a multiple different types of approaches that we are trying to use to overcome this high-risk disease. Um, Dr. Kitko, are you participating in any of these studies? Um, yes, we participated in the idacitinib study and the natalizumib study. The, the idacitinib study, um, I can say we were um, impressed with how well the drug was tolerated. So one of the nice things about being a JAK1 inhibitor is that it's a bit more specific for some of the cytokine pathways that we're worried about, and it does not impact on the um, myelosuppressive pathways that uh, you can see with the JAK1, JAK2 inhibitor. So we did not see the same count decline that when we use ruxolitinib, for example, um, that we often encounter. So that was, um, at least from a side effect profile, I think, uh, very encouraging. Awesome. Thank you. So going forward, I just want to highlight the real-world responses to acute graft-versus-host disease therapy as I've experienced them and I think others have as well. We have clinical response criteria that we use in the context of clinical trials. Um, these have arbitrary endpoints for the number of days on high-dose steroids and, um, and the, the clinical manifestations in terms of skin rash or, or diarrheal volumes. Um, this is helpful for the context of clinical trials, but in the real world, I, I think this, these are the patterns that we see. Um, what we hope to see is this graph on the left here, that someone will come with acute graft-versus-host disease, receive their diagnosis, and start therapy. Either that therapy is topicals or it's corticosteroids, serolimus, or some other first-line therapy. And over time, their symptoms improve. And the goal here is a complete response, meaning absolutely no symptoms left behind. And they stay that way. They don't have any subsequent flare I consider these patients to be first-line responsive acute GVHD. In the middle, we have something that we see all too frequently, and that's that there is an initial response, and after some period of time, there's a flare of symptoms, either recurrent skin rash, recurrent nausea, vomiting, or diarrhea, or LFT elevation. And here, when this happens, the symptoms will improve often with increasing corticosteroids or adding a second agent, and sometimes patients will have repeated flares over time. Um, they do get better when we escalate therapy, but then there's this long-term issue of being on immunosuppression for a long period of time. Uh, these patients don't have fatal GVHD, but it's still a tremendous burden. I consider these individuals second-line responsive. And then on the right, this is what we fear. These are the patients who have severe life-threatening symptoms that 
honestly, despite what we give in terms of high-dose immunosuppression or other supportive care, that their symptoms really don't improve. This is what I term fatal graft-versus-host disease. And oftentimes we can't exactly distinguish, distinguish what will happen when someone is diagnosed, but we have to be very mindful that we don't honestly know the underlying pathophysiology of what's happening in these patients. Historically, over decades, we have given more intense immunosuppression, but that hasn't always led to improved outcomes. And so you see here, I'm intentionally not saying steroid refractory GVHD because we don't actually know the pathophysiology of what is happening here. So let's talk about acute graft-versus-host disease flares. This happens quite commonly. Approximately a quarter to a third of patients are steroid dependent, meaning they'll have an initial response, but then have flares and have kind of repeated bouts of acute graft-versus-host disease. We and others have shown that these individuals have the same overall survival as steroid-sensitive acute GVHD, but obviously with a higher healthcare burden, especially as it relates to having to take medications, and these medications are immunosuppressive, they get infections, uh, and we've shown this recently in a publication. Want to point out here, when someone comes with a flare of acute graft-versus-host disease, it's extremely important to rule out confounders. We can be fooled easily. So it's important to make sure if diarrhea is recurrent, check for C. diff, check for enteric viruses, check for CMV. Consider malabsorption especially if someone is later in their course and they're heading towards chronic graft-versus-host disease, this can become more of an issue. Let's not forget about medication side effects. Latermavir, magnesium, mycophenolate, mofetil, and many others can cause diarrhea. And let's not forget about the potential for prolonged regimen-related toxicity. Um, this is particularly true after a myeloblative transplantation. So I always encourage our fellows to really think before they add additional immunosuppression because of the potential risks that that holds. Um, curious, Dr. Kitko, what your practice is when someone has a GVHD flare? Um, I, I would completely echo what, what you um, have pointed out. I think at that point, um, it's really important to try and figure out, are they truly flaring because you tapered or are they experiencing some other side effect, um, particularly infections since these patients are tend to be most vulnerable to, to getting new infections. Yeah, absolutely. Fatal acute graft-versus-host disease. Um, this is the reason that I'm in this field. I have worked and, and tried to think of ways to try to help this group of patients because it is, it is so devastating to see. So we, we term steroid refractory as acute graft-versus-host disease that doesn't improve within three to seven days of high-dose corticosteroids. But again, importantly, going back over decades, we, we don't honestly know what is going on. We don't have defined pathophysiology based upon human studies that show, for example, that there are still alloreactive T cells present in the organ causing damage. Um, there have been some interesting mouse models published within the past couple of years that for the first time are looking at this pathophysiology. And overall, it's not pointing to a T-cell mediated process. Um, we have done our own gene expression studies. Uh, I we, we performed this a few years ago where we had rectosigmoid biopsies of patients with lower GI GVHD that was severe and life-threatening, stage three to four lower GI GVHD. And then we, we had biopsies from these same patients when they became 
clinically determined to be steroid refractory uh, within a median of two to three weeks from that initial biopsy. And we wanted to ask the question, is there a difference in T-cell content or other inflammatory pathways when someone is initially diagnosed versus when they become steroid refractory? And overall, uh, we did not see an increase in T-cells or other inflammatory-related pathways in the gene expression studies, but we did see a change in stress responses damage and accumulation of M2 macrophages in steroid refractory GVHD, uh, which really needs to, uh, tells us that we need to think outside the box in terms of what's going on with these patients. A major improvement in our field is the approval of ruxolitinib for the second line of treatment of acute GVHD, and this occurred in 2019. This was the first ever FDA approval for a drug for acute graft-versus-host disease, and as Dr. Kitko just mentioned, there are some risks to it, especially infections and cytopenias. Uh, however, being an oral medication, it is really well tolerated in general and has established efficacy. That said, there are some patients who still don't respond to ruxolitinib, and this is still an area of unmet need so that we can continue to target the underlying pathophysiology. So uh, we're, we're not done with this work, even though we have an FDA-approved drug. Something that I would encourage people to think about is now that we do have an FDA-approved drug, it's an oral medication, easy to administer with well-defined toxicities, I encourage folks to not delay second-line therapy. When I was in training or uh, even before this approval, we would sometimes wring our hands for several days before starting second-line therapy because our agents were pretty toxic. We would often be looking at ATG or infliximab or etanercept or other very broad immunosuppressants. And we would sometimes wait several days to decide to pull the trigger on second-line therapy. Uh, now that we have this agent, and again, we, we understand the toxicity as well. I encourage individuals to not delay second-line therapy once they feel that someone is not improving with initial immunosuppression. New strategies for acute graft-versus-host disease. So this is just really a summary of what we've covered so far. Uh, the first important strategy is to risk stratify so that we can identify the best treatment strategy that's aimed at overall response. And again, the goal is complete response, uh, but also consider quality of life. We don't want to over-treat. We don't want to under-treat. Clinical risk can be determined immediately, uh, but there are some times where it's kind of hard to sort out what's happening, and biomarkers can be an added tool to help determine how severe someone's acute graft-versus-host disease is and how likely they are to respond to steroids. A personalized approach is critical. There are clinical trials that are ongoing to help us with this. In general, the concept with lower standard risk acute GVHD is re to reduce exposure to high-dose steroids and maintain quality of life. In the high-risk setting, we're prioritizing regenerative-type supportive care. Uh, don't delay in adding second-line uh, steroid-sparing therapy, especially since we have an FDA-approved agent with ruxolitinib. Uh, but ideally, enroll on clinical trials wherever is possible because we still don't have high-risk acute GVHD completely uh, solved at this point. 
looking to the future, I think we absolutely have to continue human translational studies in non-responsive GVHD so that we understand what is the pathophysiology. And of course, I'm highly biased here, we need to write and conduct investigator-initiated clinical trials. Uh, no one knows better how to approach this than those of us who are managing these patients every day. And as we think outside the box for new ideas, we need to focus on quality of life. Um, we have agents that are highly active, pretty unique uh, in terms of mechanism, and uh, we also have to be considering quality of life and healthcare burden as we're developing these clinical trials. So that is my summary, and with that, I will hand it over to Dr. Kitko. All right, so thank you for that great summary of acute GVHD, um, and I'm going to take us into the chronic GVHD uh, portion of our discussion today. So we're gonna talk about the phases of management. Um, we luckily have several new FDA approved agents that we will also talk about, as well as some interesting clinical trial results as well. So the phases for chronic GVHD management are very similar to what we saw with acute GVHD with considerations for prophylaxis, preemption, first line treatment and steroid refractory treatment. Um, Multi-center natural history clinical trials are really necessary to further refine our prophylaxis and preemptive strategies. Clinical trials for treatment are also still essential despite having multiple agents that now have FDA approval. And the goal should really be to try and prevent or possibly even reverse some of those sclerotic features. So let's talk a little bit about prophylaxis for chronic GVHD. So when we think about um, the, the patients over the course of the transplant, you're thinking about the risk of cancer relapse versus the, the tissue um, integrity and the alloreactivity. And this happens as early as conditioning. And then you do the transplant itself, typically with some immune suppression on board to avoid that, uh, GVHD early on, but as the patients get further out, there's risk of, of chronic GVHD development as well. So we do have some strategies that we do at present, some of our acute GVHD prophylaxis strategies that we do think might um, have some impact on our chronic GVHD risk as well. So the use of ATG, for example, and part of the preparative regimen does seem to impact on the rate as well as severity of chronic GVHD in our patients. And there's some data, particularly when you use bone marrow as your stem cell source and not peripheral blood stem cells, that doing post-transplant cyclophosphamide also might lower the rates of, of um, moderate to severe chronic GVHD. Another strategy that we uh, can, can use is actually how we impact the graft itself. So there are ex vivo T cell depletion strategies. So initially there was a very sort of pan uh, uh, depletion of the T cells, but that has lots of risk factors associated with it. Um, importantly, the risk of uh, infection, the risk of relapse, as well as graft rejection. So typically what we are seeing now are more of these designer, if you will, um, graft manipulations where you can get rid of the CD45RA or the naive T cells, or alpha-beta T-cell depletion, which um, seem to really lower those rates of, of um, acute and chronic GVHD, and yet seem to be somewhat better in terms of the risk of infection. There have but also been some studies looking at some in vivo B-cell depletion post-transplant using um, uh, uh, rituximab as well as um, another B-cell targeting agent, obinutuzumab. Um, so those are things to sort of keep in mind of what we're already doing present day. And as I mentioned before, we do 
for any intervention that we do, we really do need to think about what is the risk of the patient's development of chronic GVHD, as well as what is the risk of the intervention. So, you know, if you have a very low risk intervention, it probably doesn't matter if the patients are high or low risk of chronic GVHD if the if the risk profile is really that low of the agent. That's probably not true of many agents. They probably are at least in the, the moderate uh, category in terms of um, risk of either infection or decreasing that rate of graft versus leukemia. Um, so if something though, if you have a patient population that is at very high risk of chronic GVHD, um, you might tolerate a higher risk intervention. But if they're at low risk of chronic GVHD, even a high, um, there, there would just be no reason to consider giving a high risk agent in that, in that setting. So what are some strategies to maybe improve our early chronic GVHD diagnosis and therefore be able to do maybe preemptive studies or at least very early studies if you knew that your patient had some high-risk features? So it's really important to en enroll on longitudinal observational studies. And these can be thought of either as early as pre-transplant or potentially early post-transplant. And you can think about it either a global chronic GVHD setting, or if you're really going to go for something organ-specific, like the lungs, for example, that have a very high morbidity and mortality associated with them. And you need to you know, really have strong data, granular data, to really be able to tease out what some of these early signals might look like. So you're going to look at both physician as well as patient documentation of signs and symptoms. You'll have to include lots of routine laboratory assessments, as well as research samples for these biomarker assessments that will be really um, important to consider as well. And also think about newer technologies as well. So maybe um, patients don't need full pulmonary function studies, for example, but if there's newer home-based home technologies for monitoring um, some of the patient's pulmonary symptoms, that might be a, a good impact as well. And so when you get all this data, you can then find your patients that maybe never developed chronic GVHD or just very mild disease. So that would be a low-risk phenotype um, where you could maybe try and taper these patients off their immune suppression more quickly because you knew they were at low risk of chronic GVHD. On the flip side, if you're able to identify these patients that had these early symptoms and went on to develop more moderate to severe chronic GVHD, this would now be identified as your high-risk phenotype, and this would be the ideal population to then in the future study a preemptive strategy. So we talked a lot about biomarkers for acute GVHD, and I do think that they will really be important moving forward in chronic GVHD um, as well. But we do run into significantly uh, more issues with chronic GVHD than with acute GVHD. And I just want to point out some of those um, differences. So with acute GVHD, you're really just worried about the skin, the liver, and the gut. So the big three. Um, whereas with chronic GVHD, it can essentially affect almost every organ in the body. And our, our very complex NIH um, grading system actually has eight systems that are routinely scored, plus others, atypical manifestations that can also develop as well. So that really leads to variability in patient phenotypes. So it's probably not a surprise that a patient that maybe has dry eyes, dry mouth, and um, you know some, some intermittent skin rashes, their biomarkers are likely to be very different than somebody that has severe lung GVHD, for example. So, you know, really being able to have granular details on your patients and put them into the right bucket and study those, you know, individual phenotypes and discover what those um, biomarkers might be in those patients and compare, I think will be important steps in the future. Um, 
plus the time points that we need to get our samples are also important. We probably, if we want to do preemptive strategies, we need to get a sample before the onset. I think having a sample at onset is also likely to be helpful, um, but probably before immune suppression has started because that can impact on certain biomarker levels. Um, and then I think in terms of, of being able to potentially predict outcomes for our patients um, when their disease progresses or fails to respond to therapy might be a useful sample as well. Um, and then I think the, the big question is, it remains, what samples do we need to get? Do you need plasma? Do you need serum? Do we need just a cellular marker? And what about what's happening in the tissues themselves? Um, although obviously doing biopsies on skin repeatedly is not uh, our patient's favorite thing to do, but I think sometimes we miss what's happening at the tissue specific level because getting a blood sample just seems easier. And I think the solution, again, is these well-designed prospective clinical trials where both the patient and the physician team have really bought into monitoring these patients at increased frequency um, and getting the right samples and right assessments. So you have a patient now that has chronic GVHD. I think there are several goals that we need to keep in mind when we're going to be starting treatment. So obviously we want to control their current signs and symptoms, but I think it's really important to, to you know, take that step back and how bothersome are these symptoms really? Again, a patient with mild dry eyes and dry mouth, you know, they could probably use wetting drops a couple of times a day and, and you know, sip on a water bottle more frequently. You don't necessarily need to increase that patient's immune suppression. So trying to weigh their, their symptom burden with the risk of starting treatment is important. Um, I think the patients that do have more moderate or severe disease, it's really important that we start trying to think about how can I prevent additional tissue and organ damage um, and, and recognizing that there might be ongoing subclinical tissue damage. And, and that's what we're really targeting with our treatment. As best we can, we really want to minimize treatment toxicity. So, you know, considering comorbid conditions, um, the logistics of delivering some of these therapy, including financial toxicity, some of these new agents we're very excited about, but they are not inexpensive treatment. Um, and I, I think as as we really, I think, uh, made the point earlier for acute GVHD, for chronic GVHD as well, steroids are not nice on our patients. They have lots of side effects. And so anything we can do to sort of layer in something that might be more immunomodulating and get them off their steroids, or at least on a lower steroid dose, is very important. We do want to maintain the anti-tumor effect. Um, I think that's important to keep in mind, although um, I think when once patients have sort of crossed the bridge into chronic GVHD, there really isn't good evidence that treatment for chronic GVHD increases the relapse risk. So that might be a little bit different than when we're worried about acute GVHD earlier on. And our goal is always to try and achieve tolerance so that we can eventually stop our patient's um, immunosuppression. So consider the mechanism of action of the, the drugs that you're using. Some of our agents are, as we mentioned already, very broad, but are some agents able to increase certain cell populations like regulatory T cells, for example, that might help achieve that tolerance that is really our goal. And again, we really want to try and decrease that non-relapse mortality and increase survival. These patients had a likely a fatal disease for which we did the transplant. And I really hate it when we trade one problem for another. So trying to get their GBHD under control so that we don't have death from toxicity um, is really important. So what do we do for treatment of initial treatment of chronic graft versus his disease? So the textbooks would say when patients have moderate to severe um, chronic GBHD, the initial treatment should be one milligram per kilogram of prednisone. What was interesting in, in one of uh, the, the 
um, observational studies of chronic GBHD, we found that this really only happens in about half of the patients. So the rest of the patients either were treated with a non-steroid treatment or the physicians didn't wait for them to, to fail steroids. They added something else up front. And interestingly, there's really no difference in the failure-free survival or the overall survival in these patients, despite you know, either thinking that you undertreated by not giving steroids or thinking that you were enhancing their treatment by adding something in addition to steroids. Um, the survival seemed pretty uh, similar in, in all of three groups. So the good news, though, is that we do now have three FDA-approved agents for chronic GVHD, and I'm going to give you a little bit of information on all three of these drugs. So the first that was FDA-approved is a Brutinib, and this is a tyrosine kinase inhibitor that targets um, both T and B cells by inhibiting uh, BTK and ITK. Uh, this clinical trial, the patients were eligible if they had received one to three prior lines of treatment, so pretty early in their course of disease. I think a really important um, thing to keep in mind, though, is that these patients did have to have what I think of as an inflammatory phenotype. So they had to have at least 25% body surface area erythema with a skin rash or significant oral symptoms. Um, and so that is a very specific patient population and 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 might impact your real life experience with, with the drug. Um, but they did find that they had an overall response rate when patients met those eligibility criteria of around 67%. Um, and then on the bottom graph here, this shows um, both physician and patients uh, demonstrating that they felt that the patients were actually improved in their overall severity. Um, some important side effects to think about if you're giving your patients a brutinib include fatigue, Bruising, there is a risk of hemorrhage. Um, there are some GI side effects, some myelosuppression to keep in mind, muscle spasms, as well as some cardiac uh, toxicity as well with atrial fibrillation and flutter uh, observed as well. So I, I think an important thing to keep in mind is, is this inflammatory phenotype that the patients needed to have to go on study. Um, and I know my real life experience has maybe not been quite as good as the 67%. Um, Dr. Holton, what, what has your experience been using Abrutinib? I agree. So before I prescribed this, I asked myself, would this person have been eligible for the study? And I'm looking for the, the red skin rash or the oral changes, uh, because I agree this, this seems to have targeted patients with active inflammation. And understandably so, it's difficult to assess response in chronic graft-versus-host disease. And so if you can physically see erythema improving or the mouth improving, it's nice to know uh, that the drug is indeed working. Um, however, this is certainly um, not the only manifestation of chronic graft-versus-host disease, disease, and in fact, may be a relative minority of patients. And so um, we treated patients on study, and I continue to use this uh, now that it's commercially available as well. But I always think, do they have the phenotype that would have made them eligible for the study before I prescribe it? Yeah, I think that's that's one of my uh, key uh, thoughts as well when I'm deciding what what drug to offer once my patients uh, fail steroids. So um, similar to ruxolitinib being uh, approved for acute GVHD, it was also approved for chronic GVHD. That was the REACH-3 study. Um, this was a very well-designed clinical trial where the patients received either ruxolitinib or best available therapy for their chronic GVHD. Um, so that was a, a randomization between about eight commonly used agents for chronic GVHD. Um, 
As we mentioned, ruxolitinib itself is a JAK1-2 inhibitor, um, and the JAK-STAT system is downstream of about six, uh, about 50 or so cytokine receptors. So we think we're really sort of targeting um, those cytokine pathways. That's how we're having this impact. Um, this was a phase three open-label randomization for patients that had steroid refractory or steroid-dependent chronic GVHD who had failed um, greater than or equal to one line of therapy. So these were pretty early in, in their course of, of their chronic GVHD. Um, there are important side effects with ruxolitinib, including the bone marrow suppression. They have seen increases in viral reactivation, um, which are important things to monitor if your patients are on ruxolitinib, as well as some rare cardiac events as well. But the overall response rate was significantly better in patients that were randomized to ruxolitinib at around 50% versus only 25% in the patients on the best available therapy. And um, as Dr. Holton had mentioned, it can sometimes be really hard to show improvement um, based on the NIH response criteria, um, particularly when your patients have some of the sclerotic or fibrotic manifestations. And so another way we like to try and assess how the patients are doing are looking at patient-reported outcomes. And the best tool in chronic GVHD is something called the least symptom scale. And an improvement of uh, seven points in that least symptom scale has been validated as uh, a significant improvement in the patient's quality of life. And about 25% of patients on the ruxolitinib uh, arm were able to meet that criteria versus only 11% on the best available therapy. And I think another important thing is sometimes we show an initial response to our therapies, but eventually we lose that response and need to go on to an additional agent. Um, and so looking at failure-free survival, they also showed that that was significantly better in the patients that randomized to ruxolitinib versus best available therapy. Um, I know one of my concerns is that I think I'm going to see a lot of patients that either already received ruxolitinib for their acute GVHD or might even, I'm worried, still be on ruxolitinib when they show up on my door with chronic GVHD. And so I might have taken away one of my tools already because I'm using it for acute GVHD. Um, what has your experience been, Dr. Holden? I was excited that this received FDA approval. I think many of us have been using it off-label uh, based upon the European experience for quite some time. Uh, it's clearly an active drug. It definitely has a role in chronic graft-versus-host disease. Um, I, I agree You know that my experience has mirrored similarly to what is shown here in terms of the clinical trials. But one thing that I would add is a, a patient-reported outcome that I have heard repeatedly is concern about weight gain. Uh, some of the mechanisms of this have been described in mouse models, and so there, there are publications on this, this potential side effect. That said, it can also be a benefit. And so I tend to go for ruxolitinib and chronic GVHD where someone may have GI involvement, anorexia, weight loss. I think that um, that that potential side effect is a benefit in those patients. And others who are already Cushingoid related to corticosteroids, um, already dealing with excess adiposity, I hesitate uh, because I have seen significant weight gain on this drug. Um, however, you know, we always have to weigh the risks and benefits. How bad is the chronic graft-versus-host disease? Uh, how vital are the organs that are involved and, and what side effects are we willing to tolerate? Um, and so we, we have that discussion and then ultimately make a decision on whether to use this medication or not. Uh, but that's, that's how I prioritize ruxolitinib in my, my clinic with chronic graft-versus-host disease. 
That's very interesting about the um, weight gain. I had not observed that in, in my own patients, but certainly something that I will keep in mind in the future. So moving on then to the third FDA-approved agent for chronic GBHD is belamosidil. So this um, was also known as KD025. It was a ROC2 inhibitor, which stands for a row-associated coiled coil containing protein kinase 2. Um, and the, we think the mechanism of action is that it's actually helping downregulate the TH17 cells, increasing our regulatory T cells. And there is also some evidence that it might actually be downstream of some pro-fibrotic mediators. And I think as I keep sort of alluding to, that is one of the biggest contributors to the the particular morbidity um, in our patients, that they get this thick sclerotic skin, decreased uh, joint movement, and that's that really impacts on, on their ability to do normal you know, activities of daily living um, and just on, on how well the patients are feeling. So if we actually have some drugs now that hopefully at least you know, stop further progression and maybe even can reverse some of those fibrotic manifestations, that is going to be a real win for our patients. Um, and this was studied in, an, in a phase two open label trial for steroid refractory, steroid dependent chronic GVHD who had filled between two to five lines of therapy. There are side effects to be aware of, although generally speaking, my experience has been that the drug has been well tolerated. Um, fatigue tends to be the most common uh, side effect, but also some GI symptoms headache, um, some higher blood pressure, some uh, dyspnea or cough, um, as well as rarely edema also um, reported. And this initial study was a sort of two, it was a dose finding study where they looked at once daily dosing versus twice a day dosing. And they really didn't see a, a difference in the, the duration of response or the overall response rate, um, which led to the FDA approval of the once a day dose of 200 milligrams. And then um, I think important things to, to take away are that they really saw responses, at least partial responses and even some complete responses in almost every organ involved, including the lungs, which are really hard to see improvement in our patients. And often just stabilization, we often think of as a win sometimes when our patients have significant lung GBHD. So I think this is really nice to be able to, to tell patients that across a broad you know, uh, array of symptoms that patients were improving with this agent. Some other um, important takeaways, I think, are that the, this was a pretty heavily uh, treated population, um, but you can see across many different groups how severe the chronic GBHD was. If they um, were responsive to their last therapy, how long they had their chronic GBHD, the number of organs that they had, even being on some of the other FDA-approved agents, there were very high response rates, typically ranging between um, the high 60s to uh, high 70s in, in all of these groups. So this is, I think, really encouraging. And, and um, again, being a pill that's once a day um, is a low burden, at least in terms of taking a medicine. Now, financially, this is a very expensive medicine. Um, and I, I've luckily been able to get um, insurance companies to pay for it for the patients that I prescribe, but I'm, I'm worried about that uh, for some of my future patients. Um, Dr. Holton, have you been able to get belamosidil for some of your patients as well? We have. Yeah, we've been giving this drug in the context of clinical trials, but then also commercially quite a bit. Um, I'm, I'm really happy overall with the responses that I do see on this drug. Um, we, I guess the other thing that has been impressive to me is the, the patients with extensive comorbidities, how this drug has not seemed to worsen any of those comorbidities. So I think that's, that's pretty unique. So it's to the tolerability overall. Um, 
we have been able to get it covered to a large degree. One issue that we were having was the copay, especially in those with Medicare. Uh, but fortunately, being able to work with the, the drug company as well as with grants um, and other kind of ways around that. And, and our patients have been able to access this when they've needed it. I have one wish about the drug, and I wish that we could have some way to um, increase the dose or the, the potency. Um, we, when we prescribe it, we just have the one dose to work with, just 200 milligrams a day. Um, it's not something that we can really scale up or scale down like we can ruxolitinib or corticosteroids. And so that would be my one wish, although I understand that the, the clinical trial didn't quite work out that way. Uh, but nonetheless, it is clearly an active drug, very well tolerated, um, and is a nice addition to our options. I will say I have, you know, um, a patient that really her GI symptoms get much worse than when she's not on her proton pump inhibitor. So we, even though we tried to stop it, we had to add it back in and I was able to get coverage for her to go to twice a day on the, the medication. So I have sometimes gone to the twice a day dosing, um, because of medicine interactions. Uh, but I know not every insurance company might approve that. And so I did want to talk a little bit about an agent still under investigation um, that has a nice fibrotic, sclerotic um, potential path pathway is axitilimab. So these are the results from the initial phase one, two dose finding study. And axitilimab is a CSF1R um, antibody that depletes non-classical monocytes, including tissue-specific ma uh, macrophages. Um, and so we really do think that that might be key uh, to some of the fibrotic pathways that are happening in the skin and in the lungs, for example. So um, the study in, enrolled patients that had steroid refractory or steroid-dependent chronic GVHD after failure of at least two prior lines of therapy. Um, there are some side effects to be aware of. Um, part of it, we think, is because when you deplete those, those um, tissue-specific macrophages, that includes the Kupfer cells and the liver. And those cells often help us sort of metabolize our normal AST, ALT, as well as CPK, amylase, and lipase. So you can see transient elevation in all of those numbers, but the patients are actually asymptomatic and not um, as, as far as we can tell, experiencing any true organ damage. Um, the patients can get some pretty significant periorbital edema that can be reversible with stopping the agent. Um, and the patients can be fatigued and sometimes have some nausea. So those are um, important side effects, as well as things to be monitoring when you're um, uh, considering enrolling patients on this study. Um, the study itself looked at um, several doses. The, the two um, most common were this one milligram per kilogram given every two weeks IV versus three milligram per kilogram given every four weeks IV. Um, so again, this is IV, so your patients do need to come to clinic, so that might be a bit more of a toxicity for your, uh, your patients in terms of lifestyle. Uh, but nice overall response rates ranging between 50 and 72%, and the overall response rate was 68%. Um, the patients, if they were going to respond, tended to show signs very early, typically within a month of starting the treatment, that they were already seeing some improvement. Um, and the, these responses continued to deepen the longer that the patients were on the treatment. Um, so you can see many of these patients on the drug for quite a long time, even out as far as two years. Um, and the, the patients, if they tolerate the medicine, generally continue to tolerate it. So if they didn't get some of these side effects early on, they are unlikely to develop months into treatment. Dr. Holton, have you um, been able to use this drug on the clinical trial? 
Yes, we've participated in, in both studies, and, and we have the study ongoing here. I think a couple of differences to point out with this drug versus the others that we've discussed. Um, one downside is this is an infusion. It does require time in an infusion center. Um, that's, that's one downside compared to an oral agent. But on the plus side, I have not seen any other agent be able to address the sclerosis to a similar degree as this drug. And so the responses that we have seen, it's, this is so key. Patients have had significant change in the quality of their skin and sclerosis, even though they haven't had improvement on the NIH scale. Um, we have pictures that can demonstrate this. So this is this is one area where we still need to work on a response criteria for chronic GVHD focusing on quality of life uh, because you can go from severely sclerotic uh, skin with multiple ulcerations to uh, healed ulcers, but there's still, you know, limited range of motion, but quality of life is so much better. Uh, that's still, you know, NIH severe skin disease. Uh, so we have work to do to really kind of better characterize um, just how meaningful that response can be, even though it didn't change on the NIH scale. Uh, one other thing to just, to just note is what you mentioned here, the transient elevations of these serum enzymes. This is no joke. <laughs> so <laughs> yes. this, this will get people very excited. Um, when you'll you know, start therapy and someone may have normal or near normal levels of their uh, liver function test, their CK amylase and lipase, as you see here, um, the elevations can be in the hundreds or even thousands sometimes, and it gets everybody very nervous. The most important thing to do is a thorough history and physical. Uh, because hopefully you will find that the patients really don't have clinical hepatitis or pancreatitis or myositis. And so you just really have to discuss uh, symptoms and do a very careful physical exam to, to sort that out. And in general, as you say, over time, those enzymes will decrease as um, all those are kind of metabolized from the body after the depletion of the Kupfer cells. But just to, to highlight again, that is a, a real thing that really gets people's attention on this drug. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> They, they can be impressive elevations for sure. All right. So that sort of ends my section. Dr. Holden, I don't know if you wanted to sort of discuss your um, acute GVHD takeaways and then I can do the chronic. Yeah, just briefly, acute GVHD therapy should be risk adapted. And, and we've highlighted that uh, throughout the talk. Biomarkers can be helpful. Uh, but let's recall that we have a substantial proportion of patients who remain steroid dependent. They'll need second line therapy and we need to work on more precision therapies that are not so broadly immunosuppressive. And we do have an FDA approved agent with ruxolitinib that is approved for acute graft versus host disease after failure of one to two lines of therapy. Don't hesitate in moving to second line therapy if someone isn't responding promptly to high dose corticosteroids. Uh, but overall our field still has work to do because we don't fully understand what's happening when people are not improving on steroids. Great. Um, and then just to sort of wrap up with chronic GVHD, um, I think one of our keys to really moving the field forward is going to be the development and participation in both natural history studies, as well as to continue to support treatment trials. It's great that we have these three FDA-approved agents, but they don't work for everybody. And so we really need to, to keep studying um, 
new pathways and hopefully more of these targeting the fibrosis and sclerosis. And hopefully as well through our clinical trial development, we will further our efforts in the biomarker development as well so that we really can look to a future where the biomarkers help us risk stratify um, and potentially even figure out you know, which drug is the right drug to start your patient on? Because uh, as I said, their their phenotypes can be different and, and it is not a big surprise that they might have different responses to their treatment. Here are references if anyone is interested in further reading. And Dr. Kit Coe, it's a pleasure as always. Thank you so much for the invitation. I really enjoyed our, our talk today. Thank you for listening to the I3 Health podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss an episode. To claim CME or NCPD credit for this activity, visit i3health.com slash ODA hyphen GVHD. While you're there, you can check out our other free oncology CME and NCPD offerings at i3health.com. Don't forget to follow us on social media for free NCPD and CME, as well as news, exclusive interviews, and more. In addition to our podcast, the Oncology Data Advisor site features expert perspectives and news stories on the latest in cancer research and treatment, all found at oncdata.com. <laughs>